is Swampside Chats, the podcast where every week communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, we're back on the force march of history with our most direct Bonapartist dictatorship ever, courtesy of a returning guest and generous patron, Gene Allen from Opposition Radio. Under their sway, we've been seduced from proletarian materialism towards the highfalutin British idealism of Robin George Collingwood. We read the epilogue to the posthumous 1945 collection, The Idea of History. Not one step back, my good chap. We read a little work by a Mr. Uh, Robin George Collingwood, a section from a What's it called? The fucking uh, idea of history. What we looked at was something called History as Reenactment of Past Experience, which is section four of part five of the book. Part five is titled um, Epilegomena. Yeah, Epilogomena. It's an epilogue. Let's, let's just call it an epilogue. Okay. If you're an aristocrat in like the early 20th century and you're writing something, it has to be in Greek or Latin or whatever the fuck. Hey, hey, who the hell is that? Is that, is that Gene Allen from the organizational material episode? Oh my God. I just came in. I'm just walking past the metaphorical table that y'all are at. Now, true or false, this is a very special, not one step back request episode uh, because we read these sections of the idea of history and i was listening to what you said about trying to think this way as like a a marxist or an activist and that we 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 were like how the hell are we gonna draw this out without bringing the, the patron on true or false that is why i'm here i mean i'm also here you know because you guys are really cool <laughs> well to be fair so this is the most direct bonapartist dictatorship we've ever had yeah yeah, I mean, that's, that's how democracies die. But, like, they're given away. Yeah, With thunderous not. applause. Yeah, I got my forced uh, Star Wars prequels <laughs> reference in for the night, so I think I'm just going to call it a day. <laughs> okay, so, looking at this, it's, it seems to be, like, basically a question of, like, the epistemology of, like, history, or the philosophy of history, and how historians know things. Basically. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, it's like, it kind of reminds me in a weird way of like reading Capital, not in its content, but in that way where it's this very complex analysis of a thing that you do all the time. Mm -hmm. It feels kind of phenomenological. It feels dialectic. It feels like he's working through basically zooming in at like the kind of like the abstract level of thought in terms of how historians conceptualize history, right? Well, this guy's a liberal Anglo-Hegelian, so... Yeah, yeah. trivial dialectical. Huh. Yeah, even it's slightly dialectical. Uh, I want to see if I understand this correctly. So in this, the section that we looked at, he's basically talking about like how can past thoughts, like what are they in the present? And does having them exist in the present make them different things? Do they have to have their complete original context in order to be like those original thoughts? And then 
in the end, he seems to basically say something to the effect of, you know, so like abstractions that can be like separated from the context and they don't have to be arrived at the same way, but it's still the same thing. It's kind of like an empathetic response, right? Uh, this is a weird metaphor, but when you're in an argument with like a partner or a friend or a relative, you in your head are like constructing your version of like what they are pissed about. Mm-hmm. Kind of like that. It's this like constantly imperfect understanding that you have of this past idea. Like he specifically at one point invokes like Euclidean geometry and how he's like, you have to understand like the entire like sequence of thoughts that led him to arrive to that point. Or can you, by reading him, like come to understand, like what he seems to arrive at is basically like there is like this formulation that is distinct and is like a sequence of thoughts because he talks about like thoughts as like an action. It's like a thing that's done. It's not like a substance. So should we like lay out the basics of the worldview here? Because like that Euclidean geometry thing was one of the weirdest parts uh and kind of stuck out to me. So I'm going to come back to that. Let, Let me see if I get this right. What he's saying is that history can be a science. However, the logic of scientific discovery in the science of history is focused on intentional action, either of individuals with consciousness or, you know, collective actors with a sort of imagined consciousness, a thought directed inquiry that marks history as being different than what you get in right, right in the demonstrative sciences. And that instead of deduction, you're arguing by inference. Before that, he talks about time, too, how before Darwin, like, nature was seen as more, like, static, and then mm-hmm. it's, like, this dynamic process. But history isn't simply temporality. It's temporality, but studying conscious actors, basically. Right. And then he brings up this historicism, and he's one of the first people to use the term in the modern sense, I think. But then he says something else, which kind of gives me a sense that this kind of historicism is quite different than the historicism that we're used to in Marxism. and it's kind of like what Jake was saying about Euclid and geometry. He's really talking about discovery of some kind. He really does think of this as a kind of knowledge, and it's not like a construction in the sense that you're positing something and then filling it in. There's this kind of dialectical notion that it's really there and you're really detecting it. And so he makes the comparison between figuring out the laws of Euclidean geometry and seeing how that stuff plugs into modern geometry. He compares that to like the Roman constitution and how um, the questions in Roman constitutionalism not merely rhyme with today, but like are part of the conceptual scheme that we're inheriting. And in the same way that you do geometry, you're kind of wrestling with the same cumulativeness between this and that. And it's because there are actors, individual and collective actors, being faced with the same kind of situations, even though there's a historical difference. Am I getting this right? They're both based off of, like, these basic suppositions of, like, dealing with a problem in this period of time and having these, like, implicit assumptions that were, to some degree, similar throughout that period of time. And he was arguing that you could not figure out perfectly, but start to arrive at a better idea of what the action is about based off of trying to ask what kind of questions they were asking. Instead of looking at history 
as a series of decisions that people made that were right, correct, or incorrect, you look at like the decision itself mm. and try to replicate what their th- thought process was in your mind. And he views that as like the most scientific form of history. So you look at these collectivities of these individuals, you look at circumstances around them that they were basically trying to act within. Because there was a consciousness like making decisions, you try to, almost like observing somebody play a game, right? Game is the word. You know what the irony is? This reminds me of some of the most positivistic literature I know. Literally a branch of mathematics. Rational choice theory. The funny thing about rational choice literature is that it very much views itself (laughs) as like a demonstrative science and you'll find these axiomatic proof deductions about different strategies. If the game is iterated, then this is the better strategy or this and that. I mean, it's part of the math that there is a dominant strategy. There is a right answer. Nash equilibria. I think it's very interesting to see someone distinctly say, look, don't try to mash this in with the other sciences. And, and I respect his desire to like look at consciousness as something else. But I, I don't actually see this as immune from deductive argument. In fact, what he's laying out can be so much more scientific, properly scientific, than he seems to think. Both properly and pr- improperly scientific, because like the, the similarity between this and like, you know, Nashite game theory, they're still looking at the same thing. And he thinks that looking at the same thing inherently leads to a completely new method and a new level of scientificness and Knox like earlier you know more statistical or more archival based forms of history that were immediately before him but as you said like this could just as easily be scientistic the vibe that i got from this is that it's basically the historical equivalent of proxyology because with proxyology you have a axiomatic focus on psychology, you know. These are principles that you can deduct from, like, human action, you know, human thought. And what it is is something that is separate from the natural sciences because of human subjectivity and uh, heavy empiricism is what separates proxyology from, say, the natural sciences. Yeah, that's the general vibe I got from it. He relates it back to Plato. This is a fulfillment of like Plato's thought throughout history in general. It's just following the ideas and the development of human consciousness throughout history. It's like a Hegelian version of praxeology. Like that's that's an interesting way to put it, a Hegelianization of praxeology. That's a lot of ten pound words. Th- there are two differences that jump out to me though, is that um again, he's really interested in inductive reasoning. And he even describes the whole concept of, you know, inductive reasoning as being like a coup against like Cartesian, like deductive approaches to science, which I think is like kind of funny, you know, think of it as, haha, we've struck a, you know, struck a victory when it, you know, all the science bros and stuff that I've ever met, you know, IRL today in science's ideology can, you know, perfectly incorporate induction and deduction right next to each other. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like the emphasis on induction in Collingwood's versus the, uh, the deductive praxeology thing. And then the second thing is, and I, I bring this up in any discussion on game theory, 
and decision theory is the problem of assigning a conscious agent structure to collective actors. That can make sense if there is like a hardened decision structure, but I don't know how the praxeology people see that stuff. Which is interesting, right? Because it's basically like the opposite of the way that Marxists analyze collective actors, right? Well, it should be. It should be. Like, but very often Marxists see Geist. Marxists assign a ghostly collective actor to, for instance, the proletariat or like to, to class subjectivity. Whereas Marx himself was, I hesitate to say methodological individualist, but you know, he, he really did believe that these great forces of history were broken down into the decisions of individual consciousness. Yeah. But he, you know, talked about class because that was the way that you could analyze society without having to sift through billions of individual actors. Right, right. Well, there are also organs of class action to speak of, and that's what makes, you know, a rational choice thing make sense. If you have a political party or if you have a huge syndicalist trade union, you can do a pretty good rational choice of their decisions. Yeah. But game theory individualizes collective actors because the only actor that they see fit to analyze is individuals. And that's like, I guess the problem with this is that sends a dialectic that deals with the whole of society with this kind of intellectual history. All that you can do when you're confronted with a decision that isn't immediately reducible to one actor is to pretend that it's one actor by giving it, you know, a spirit. Yeah. By acting Uh, as if tons of people are in fact one person making a decision. Microeconomists do the same thing. Some of the stuff that really made me like switch from like economics focuses in school were seeing the way that neoclassical microeconomists dealt with collective actors by just like homogenizing their interests. This strikes at the heart of where I have a problem with Hegelianism and with some actual existing rational choice theory. The Marxian assumption that these levels of reality are actually linked. And this gets into another aspect of his thought that split between natural explanation, let's say, and historical explanation. Like, I'm the first to admit that different disciplines and different like levels of analysis or whatever require different tools. But I think in principle, we should leave the door open to there being like a connection between the two. Like if for some reason we could connect, I don't know, Freudian drives to neuroscience like stuff. I I don't have particular faith in either of those modes of explanation, but if we did have a unified theory of those things, that would be really interesting. And I think maybe it would be possible if you did some kind of like integrated analysis. I think it's possible to connect different realms in a way that he doesn't. You know, he thinks it's fruitless to analyze history in terms of like, I don't know, the degrees of the environment or the tons of food produced or something like you have to look at just the the consciousness involved i know that he had like some faint bullshit likings of marxism as it existed in the 30s and 40s but i don't think that he would be okay with the idea of history as the history of class struggles he has some negative things to say about marx and hegel And just about anyone that ever wrote about the philosophy of history before him. 
wasn't like Marks like one of like Derrida's three like masters of suspicion. Mm. Like for Marx, like he was basically interested in basically what was unconscious, right? So you have like these material forces that are like enacting on like human beings and they're responding to it in like these mystified ways that they don't entirely like rationally understand. Even if their actions do have a rationality to them, you know. Yeah. Yeah. He knocks the idea of Marx's selecting the economic aspect of human life as fully rational by itself and allowing a fully rational analysis of history. It's interesting that we're just bringing the Derrida up now because his big inspiration was Vico. And there's that whole, like, Isaiah Berlin and, like, the contextualists who were against universalism in every sense. And he was definitely a part of that. That was something that for a period of time was really popular in the left. Like post-anarchism was all about like difference and contextual stuff, like disallowing the possibility. Mm. Break out the Adderall. It's time to get diacritical. (laughs) But like analyzing the idea that because of context and difference, not only can you not analyze history as done by universal factors but that it's actually ideologically not good to do that oh yeah and that i think that you could definitely pull that out of him and vico that was why i was asking like is this inherently reactionary because vico Uh, himself was a conservative catholic in the kingdoms of sicily and naples in the late 17th century and was explicitly against republicanism because he saw it as a universalizing impulse. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of weird, because this guy's a liberal, essentially. Yeah. And there's, like, a weird sort of progressive element. I mean, sort of like a progress of history going from what I can tell, just sort of, like, of ideas progressing. He knocks the idea of the influence model of intellectual history, where it's like, well, to read Marx, you really need to understand Hegel and Plato and blah, 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 because he says that that reverses like what the agency is. You know, Marx read Hegel in a very particular way because he was himself an agent. And to understand the way that Marx read Hegel, you actually have to understand Marx, not Hegel, you know? Mm. So he pushes Um, against what I'm saying. Yeah. He pushes like that. There is a progression of ideas that it's not just that kind of reactionary thing where all of history is reducible to people reading past greater theories, you know? Well, but I think Rose is talking in a sense about social progress. The idea of the game of the Roman constitution, you know, there could be an improvement between that and the American constitution, which I actually think that I agree with Rosa. I think he does defend some version of this. Yeah, there's an idea of the development of consciousness throughout history increasing that's Hegelian in its nature that's embedded in the work from what I can tell. Of course, I'm only going off of the epilogue and a little bit of the part that I read about Spangler, which I'll get into in a little bit because he does not understand Spangler at all. (laughs) I'm reading the thing about Marx, and I think that you could make the argument that for someone who talks about understanding, he doesn't really understand a lot of the thinkers that he talks about here. He's writing in the 1930s, so Marx is really talking about like Stalin. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which is cool and great, and is fine. Very cool. Very cool and good to be comradely to our comrades in podcasts. There's sort of like a development of consciousness 
history as a development of conscious ideas. Essentially, that's what he's building off of as like his basis for history and understanding history can only be through understanding the sort of rationality of actors within history. It cannot be understood in the same sense of natural sciences because it deals with subjectivity and history itself cannot be directly observed due to it being in the past and the depths of which does not allow for direct observation. Main thrusts of his argument. And I think that there's like this libertarian impulse. It's like kind of a similar thing that Hayek had going on that you can't do economic planning because you can't understand the internal workings of people's heads. And his argument is that you can't understand history as just like a series of stuff that happened because there's so much stuff inside of people's heads that you don't understand. You can only understand individual points where people made decisions and you're able to give like a qualified response to that, I guess. Yeah, I contain multitudes, okay? <laughs> you can't reduce me to a number on a piece of paper, man. Damn, dude. We all do. <laughs> you know, the thing is, is that you kind of, for practical reasons, can. <laughs> kind of can. Do you grasp the essence of something? No. But one of the things that has gotten to me the most in, like, modeling, like, social action or individual action is the degree to which not being able to do a cognitive grasp of the truth of something doesn't really stop people from developing stuff that emulates that in a predictive way. That's what machine learning is all about. We don't think machines can do cognitive grasps and really get something, but they can approximate it close enough for, you know, extraction of like surplus. So that's a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff is just like approximation when you're dealing with like, you know, material stuff. There's no like perfect. There's no like perfect apprehension that you get would get with like a pure like logical or mathematical logical or mathematical model or something like that. Yeah, some some people think we just like reverse engineered how humans actually think by doing machine learning and being like you know we kind of approximate too weird bong rep. As you said, you do it constantly. Like you go into you know some friend's place and they have a big swastika up in their room and then you leave. Because, like, you don't have to know the 100% why he has that, but you have enough of a sense by the fact that he has that, that you're like, all right, I don't need to know the rest of this story. Like, just as an example. But, like, yeah, you can get enough of an impression for actionable history. And if you create this, like, gate, I guess, through which you say that history can only be done if you know, like, what the person's, like, PhD dissertation was then, yeah, most people don't get to have that kind of history. But that's not to say that we can't know stuff about them. I mean, I, I guess he's trying to, like, outline a methodology and to get to the base of things, but, like, what struck me as bizarre reading it is where he was kind of, like, going through these things, like, it was, like, a long, roundabout way of saying human beings don't have telepathy. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, how do these thoughts get transmitted from one person to another? Are they transmitted? Are they the same thought? Are they different thoughts? Yeah, if you went all the way through with this line of thinking, then no one would be able to understand each other, period. Well, that was kind of the reductive absurdity thing he was saying to like this imaginary person he was arguing with. But again, he's trying to develop like a sound baseline level that he can build up from. And so he's trying to poke holes in any possible conception of like historical knowledge. I get that. But it still is kind of weird to read. And it does get into like, you know, questions like how do people know things in general? 
and can like the mind know itself was like a big question that he like tries to tackle in a way i'm not sure i really understood like his conclusion i think like in some ways like ah, never mind it's, this is gonna get up to bong rip shit i don't know come on jake the only interesting way to do this is to bring it into bong rip shit otherwise we're just doing like uh you know history 101 shit <laughs> It could be a question of, like, the mind is material, but understanding it requires a scale of, like, information complexity, like, grasping and processing. Like, human beings aren't, like, capable of with, on, like, pencil and paper, but you could maybe do with, like, you know, computation, like, decades or centuries down the line, you know? Mm. I am skeptical of the idea that, like, the human mind can just a priori completely grasp itself, although, I don't know, maybe it could be done, I don't know. Because, you know, most of the time, you're just acting out of, like, impulses that you don't fully understand. Well, it would be one thing to, like, understand your own mind wholly and truly. I think it's another thing entirely to, like, develop a reasonable enough, like, set of models for how thinking works. Right. Like, and, yeah, a lot of the attempts at that are pretty rough and no cigar, not even close. But, like, you know, I think in theory, it could be possible. And that reflexive thing of, like, the problem with thinking about oneself does play into the long-form process of developing an accurate psychological model or set of psychological models. But I think the direct problem of reflexiveness within a person is more complicated than it is for the general structure of the human mind. Humanity as a collective actor because it's not really a collective actor, could understand itself precisely because it's not one consciousness. All right, I'll take my bong rap. Yeah, I was going to say what? Like, how, could, like, <laughs> what? How, how would humanity like collectively understand itself? What do you mean by that exactly? I mean, like, if there's actually like a theory of mind that people actually refine, like if Freudianism gets his head out of its ass and develops a set of abstract relations that explain why, you know, or to go to the best work of philosophy produced, you know, in the last century, the last episode of Neon Genesis Evangelion, oh if we God. were to meet an alien species which had a fundamentally different nature, then we would then be able to understand our own nature. Right. He has this thing in, like, another text about um, suppositions and absolute suppositions. And suppositions are answers to which you have no question. Like, they're things that you haven't even thought of as a logical causal chain, but they're something that you still have and that you still, like, you know, base your worldview around. And if we were to meet an alien species that has a different, like, series of absolute suppositions, then we would be able to understand our own. I mean, would we, though? Like, it would highlight some differences, but I think there would still be some things that might be beyond the scope of our ability to, like, comprehend or measure. You know, I don't know if we actually have the tools to really, like, fully model human consciousness, you know? This is the first time that Marxists have ever talked about human nature. This is the first time Marxists have ever talked about Evangelion. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I don't know about that. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a Hegelian point to it in which you can only understand objects based on their relations to other objects. Consciousness is always consciousness of something. And actually, contemporary neuroscientists tend to agree with this. So it's not totally bullshit. Like, there's something to this. And the idealists in general, I guess Collingwood was 
representative of this British idealist tradition or something. Idealists in general actually score a point. But of course, this is being determined and clarified by neuroscientists that are using (laughs) the kind of scientific analysis that I don't think Collingwood is getting at. You know, okay, first of all, I just want to say, after this episode tonight, I have no right to make fun of Jordan Peterson for showing his ass, only having read the manifesto, and because I really feel like I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about here, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I think it's a fairly abstract topic, and a lot more abstract even than a lot of the things we read on here, which is not to say it's bad. This is coming from like a renewal of the tradition that Marx and Engels were very much against. They believe in a material monism. They believe that all the like evolutionary factors of man in the same way that Darwin was making progress in explaining human evolution in their lifetimes, that they were making the same discoveries against political economy. I also just want to say that when you went on the first, you know, series of questions, you can still knock Peterson about that because Peterson has ranted about Marx for years. Okay. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. We even made a career out of being like, Collingworth is the reason that everything's wrong with the world. Yeah, let, let, let me tell you something, Bucko. Uh, you better understand that uh, when you go around talking about how uh, we transmitted across history. But I realized when you asked a series of questions like, oh shit, not only is this the epilogue of a book that y'all have not read, this is like completely out of like the wheelhouse that you generally work in. Well, yeah, but it's cool. It's not philosophy that you can easily analyze through like the kind of history that we all have some sense of. I have a pretty good sense of like the history of leftist theory. And if I was given a text of leftist theory, I'd be able to place it within like a context. I don't know that much about British historiography in the 30s and 40s. I have a vague grasp on it because I know of Hegel a bit through Marcuse, Reason and Revolution, and it's actually pretty good in terms of explaining sort of Hegel, the basics of Hegelian thought. I could be entirely wrong about that, but from what I can tell, the secondary source is very, very clear and illuminating on the subject matter of Hegel's overall body of thought and situates it nice within its historical context, too, which is pretty nice in terms of Hegel's relationship to liberalism. And Hegel as sort of like an Enlightenment figure is generally overshadowed and is generally not brought up as an Enlightenment figure. Yeah, because we don't look at like German history that way. Like We see the Enlightenment and Romanticism and stuff like that as being these two very specific periods, but that's basically just us knowing some stuff about French and British history, whereas Germany had their Enlightenment and Romantic period slightly later. And essentially, there's something that happened with liberalism where I want to say it got Americanized in a way, a sort of like weird empiricism that's like inherited in American thought has just brutalized the entirety of liberalism as a body of thought. It might have something more to do with capital itself, not really needing a kind of humanities heavy body of thought, really. It gets intellectualized through, like, Cold War readings of liberalism that heavily emphasize Locke over other liberal thinkers that were more prominent around the time of the 18th and 19th century liberalism. 
this sort of Americanization of liberal thought that moves away from a more nuanced sort of continental leaning understanding of liberalism towards a more simplistic, I don't want to call it analytical. Abstracted liberalism almost, I want to say. Yeah, but continental stuff is abstracted too. It's the highly like pragmatic and sort of scientific norms of analytical philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I would also say that like there was definitely more of a political tinge to it because it was different being like a Republican or being against Mm. the state when the state is an absolute monarchy that's also the absolute monarchy of a place that's like 20 square miles across. I don't know how to apply this type of thinking exactly to practical matters, but the one thing that I thought that this said directly maybe to practical matters was that there's a certain way of doing history that Marxists are capable of, basically because they have inherited you know, religious textual traditions. The idea of scissors and paste and pigeonholing, that lends itself to cherry-picking. The question would be how Collingwood provides an alternative to it, because he seems to view pigeonholing as a critical school of these cut-and-paste historians. Like, he doesn't think they're just, like, mere authoritarians. Let's quickly explain, like, the terms for people who haven't, like, read the text themselves. Like, scissors and paste. It's like the ancient Greek and Roman histories where you're just sort of assembling different testimonies. Right, and there's an authoritarian variant of this where you're just sort of, like, bearing witness to the truth of what people are saying and putting it together. Which, honestly, I think is a reductive way to read Herodotus and Thucydides. Herodotus, at least, I can speak from experience, is more critical than he's giving credit for. But uh, whatever, people read great books and miss the point. So sure, I could deal with that. And then so there's a critical school of these cut-and-paste historians, pigeonholers. I'm just going to read a quote here. Scissors and paste historians who have become disgusted with the work of copying out other people's statements and, conscious of having brains, feel a laudable desire to use them, are often found satisfying this desire by inventing a system of pigeonholes in which to arrange their learning. This is the origin of all those schemes and patterns into which history has again and again, with surprising docility, allowed itself to be forced by men such as Vico, with his pattern of historical cycles based on Greco-Roman speculations, Kant, with his proposal for a, quote, universal history from a cosmopolitan point of view, Hegel, who followed Kant in conceiving universal history, as the progressive realization of human freedom. Comte and Marx, two very great men who followed Hegel's lead, each in his own way, and so down to Flinders Petri, Oswald Spengler, and Arnold Toynbee in our time, whose affinities are less with Hegel than with Vico. Wasn't Toynbee the fall of Western civilization guy, or am I thinking of someone else? It's related, but it's like a different thing because he's less nihilistic than Spangler. He's less morose. He's a thinker that's generally forgotten about that was bigger in his time. Going through like the secondary sources that I have on him, he's not that particularly interesting. In the 20s and 30s, a lot of people were doing the cycle of civilization theory. I bet that there are probably people who are doing a similar thing now in history departments. Yeah. Oh, let's talk about how, like, he deals with other thinkers for a few minutes. I just scrolled through and I saw, like, oh, there's a little section on Spangler. 
it's only like a paragraph long, so let me just read this. And he does not understand Spangler at all. It's probably like one of the more shallow readings of Spangler that I have that makes me wonder if he actually read like Decline of the West. Like he labels Spangler positivist because he uses the Gothian morphology as like a metaphor for historical or civilizational rise and collapse, cycles of cultures. And the reason why he uses Gothian morphology as like the basis for his understanding of history is because it's not really scientific in a modern sense. It's not based on like a causality of events. Rather, things just sort of happen because they happen. There's no causation to it. It doesn't assume that history is some kind of machine. It happens because these are just simply phases of existence that happen with civilizations. It generally avoids being a science in a modern sense or even in like a 20th century positivist sense. So to label like Spangler a positivist kind of weird honestly it's weird and it's very very wrong what was that trotskyist term for how stalin would like define all of his enemies using like singular terms that didn't make sense because they combined a ton of different things uh no actually uh now i'm ticked off because it's gonna come to me at like 2 a.m tonight your trotsky nerdery is on point it feels kind of like that, where it's like, okay, you don't like him, but the problems that he has are not that specific kind of problem, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, I was trying to use this as a springboard to get to, what's the actual practical takeaway from this? And not that we need a practical takeaway, because it's fucking British idealism, but because you're the Bonapartist dictator, and you brought this up, and I want to unfold that, because I'd have a hard time even broaching that question. Okay, so I agree with the conversation that we've had that if you applied this kind of analysis to all of history, that it's not like a systemic or scientific analysis of history. We have better modes right now and politically kind of questionable. And it's weakened by the fact that a lot of the readings from stuff that he is doing is not great (laughs) as somebody who claims that he's finding a way on how to analyze other thinkers. He's sometimes shitty about it but i do think that if you look at organizational histories or histories of practice like histories of activism stuff that's higher up in terms of like the lenses of analysis you do have that material history in the back of your head but it's very helpful to think about the decisions that people made in this light because this is the kind of question this was made to solve if that makes sense yeah okay i think i see what you're saying the examples that he kind of pulls from here are like what was Caesar thinking? You know, what was Napoleon thinking, right? And so, yeah, it's a way of looking at people who were, like, legit name historical actors and trying to understand how they were making decisions by looking at the context that they were within and the questions that they had. Which, yeah, and that's kind of how I just naturally try and think about the various revolutions that took place, you know? Like, what were these things they were doing? What questions were they trying to answer? You could do that with like socialism in one country, right? It makes a lot more sense when you look at the historical context. It becomes clear what they were trying to do. It was a stupid answer, but like there was a legit actual question there that they were trying to resolve. Yes, and that gets to what I would say, which is that this isn't as scientific as you can get. 
this is in many ways bad, but this is in many ways a lot better than the way that leftists often do history, which is, well, they made the bad decision because they're bad people, you know? Right. Or, or, or you have like this hyper-determinism where it's like, yeah, they did it because they didn't get rid of capitalism or because... They didn't know, like, push the communization button, those right. motherfuckers. Right. The thing is, like, sometimes for obvious reasons, like, Marxists will tend to push aside historical agency as much as possible. Not just Marxists, too, like, because so much of standard history that you're taught in primary school and even in college is, like, you know, great man of theory history, right? So you're looking at, like, the structural things more, and you see that more. But there is agency. Like, what the agencies aren't, aren't always easy to quantify or, or aren't always clear, but there is historical agency. And so it's kind of hard to accept that there are instances where things could have broke one way or another, right? And so that's uncomfortable. We want a clear answer. This happened, therefore this. They just didn't do that, then these things wouldn't have happened, right? But, like, there's a fog of war, there's a fog of history. There's a certain amount of indeterminacy that we really can't say. And similarly, like, in terms of people making decisions, like, yeah, you have to look at the circumstances they were responding to, and then you can begin to understand the questions that they were asking themselves. Yeah. I think there's a good reason that he insists that this is the only logic of history, basically, or the only scientific way to approach history, is that all of the broader processes of science that he is contrasting his method to, a lot of that stuff can kind of be abstracted away on the level of how that stuff appears to the actors in question. Because if you have like a successful historical actor, it's you know possible that they're aware of the important factors in attaining power. Like it makes sense that they would already be conceptualizing and sort of like accounting for these things within their consciousness. You know, let's say we're talking about some historical actor that comes out of climate change in 15 years. The degree of ice melt, you'll have an entire perfect scientific explanation for where the ice melt came from and how far along that's going. But the logic of the collective actor, all of that is sort of wrapped up in the constraints that the actor is facing and conceptualizes to themselves about. Yeah, you don't get John Connor if the machines don't rise. Right, and John Connor understands the machines. He's mapping and like understanding their threat and making decisions based on the machine game. <laughs> yeah, even if you look at stuff like Occupy, even as far back as that, you do have some degree to which we're not just going to be able to know everything about all of that stuff, but it's close enough to our context. You know enough people or perhaps experienced it yourself that you can actually like replicate that mode of thinking and like where people are coming from. That would lead to a more helpful criticism of Occupy than they didn't push the create proletarian party button. <laughs> and it's cause they're shit. That's so often what replaces analyzing figures on their own terms, I guess. Okay. I guess I share that interest with them. It's just that, to like improve his framework, if you answered all those questions, you would understand my brand of Rand Corporation Marxism. <laughs> no, I get that. Uh, is there other stuff that we want to say that this guy sucks about? He's a British idealist. He's British and an idealist. I, I apologize for inflicting this on y'all. No, no this, this is great. great. This, this is what the Not One Set Back program, the Bonaparte program, is all about. I mean, okay. I don't know if this is what you're looking for from us. You know, <laughs> you, you're not getting your money back, though. Just make that 100 percent clear. No, um, no, it's so, all right. Non-refundable. I'm just going to go on Yelp.com and complain. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> the service is horrible. <laughs> this was a good take from this. 
I wish I had more time to like read all of it. I, I gave be- you all the whole fucking book. Like, come on. That's yeah. it was rude of me to do that. I should have picked an article. We're on the same page. Remember, potential Bonapartists, we're talking about a 50, 60 max page thing. You know, think of it like a, a dollar a page. That's a reasonable rate, right? We just did Paul Cockshop, but I'd read that already. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, yeah. that person probably got more of their money's worth than you did here, but, you know, that's mostly due to a coincidence. I got my money's worth. I'm on the fucking thing. I'm doing the fucking fan contest right now. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Yeah. yeah. I'm not as much of a fan of this as I was when I read this, like, at the beginning of grad school, when this felt like a uh, very refreshing counter to, like, public policy bullshit scientism. Yeah, I don't know. This is still cool. That was why I made a call for, like, more leftist archiving. Because if we don't do that, then we don't have enough knowledge to actually, like, criticize individual leftist organizations. We do, but we don't have enough to develop a criticism that you can actually learn from, if that makes sense. Maybe you can slip that into, like, Foucault scholars and trick them into being useful. Yeah, definitely. Archaeology of knowledge. Yeah. Like, what I read of this, like, I actually did enjoy reading. I was baffled in places, so there was a little bit of that, but I kind of miss reading philosophy. I haven't really dived into any stuff in a good minute, and it's kind of reminded me of that. Definitely, like, because I read one of the secondary things out of this that was like, because you're the actual agent, whenever you quote another thinker, it's not their voice. You're using their quotation to make your argument. And I'm just like, oh, I just love this shit that's working at this level of, like, meta. You still have people who forget it who are like well this person didn't quote Marx in the right way and that's the problem with them and it's like angela nagel isn't problematic because she didn't read enough Marx. it didn't help it didn't help (laughs) but it's like she's using those quotations to make her argument so argue against her argument not that she didn't read the quotations right so yeah collingwood that fucker died from overwork at the age of 46 damn (laughs) wow Yeah, this was a posthumous collection. Most of this, I think, was written in the late 30s, or at least one of the parts was written in the late 30s. It was put out in the mid-40s. Yeah, right after World War II, I think. But how many podcasts do you think he would have made? That's my last question of y'all. How many podcasts would he have made? I think a lot. I think he could have done, like, YouTube. I feel like... Oh, yeah, he's a YouTube guy. Do you think he's Theory Cell? He's definitely Theory Cell. Yeah, I could see that, actually. Unless he was gay, then he was probably fine, but... Oh, yeah. If he's not gay, then we won't necessarily know that. He's a total twink. Um, (laughs) He is. He's hot. He's definitely hot. He has the haircut. You know, I don't know if we're the only podcast on your local podcatcher to do one on Collingwood, but we're definitely the only one to get hot for him. To admit, to finally admit and say the truth, which is that he's a twink. Bertland Russell would be all over his ass. <laughs> That's it for this week. Episodes like this are made possible by Bonapartists like you. Not One Step Back custom episodes are available on Patreon for $10 a month over a six-month period or on PayPal for $60. For subscriptions, go to patreon.com slash swampsidechats, and for all-in-one payments, go to paypal.me slash swampsidechats.
To further enable our bong rip shenanigans, like our pages on social media, or leave a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice. Visit our homepage at swampside.chat for more. Swampside Chats is part of the Emancipation Podcast Network and Research Collective. Check out our comrade podcasts from Alpha to Omega and General Intellect Unit at emancipation.network. You'll find me regularly on the From Alpha to Omega reading series. We've got more custom episodes coming up, but also a special trip to the Antifada mothership as we read Gilles Duvet's The Eclipse and Reemergence of the Communist Movement. And as always, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow. <laughs>